You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. Hello, and welcome to Communication Mixdown. I'm John Langer. When does the name of a global corporation become a verb, the action word in a sentence? You're asked a question by a friend about something you don't know the answer to. So you grab your phone and you say to your friend, I'll just Google it. Just the way the tech company Google has insinuated itself into our language, it's also embedded itself into our everyday lives. According to our guest this week, surveillance and commodification are the two interconnected corporate strategies that have made Google the global juggernaut that it's become. Timothy Eric Strom researches global political economy and has recently published a book entitled Globalization and Surveillance. He's been tracking Google since the early days, and I spoke to him last week. Take us right back to the beginning. Where did the name Google come from? Because you make a point that right at the very start, the name itself reveals a lot about the way the company thought about itself and its ambitions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The word Google, originally spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, was a number, which is one followed by 100 zeros. So it is an absolutely enormous number. Uh, And it... It pertains to the incredible ambition of Google as a corporation. To try to put that number in some perspective, um, Carl Sagan in his famous series in the 80s, I think it was, Cosmos, said that there may be around one followed by 80 zeros of elementary particles in the entire universe. And so if you think of every single atom that exists, uh, that number of the universe, it's absolutely staggering. So it's a monstrous number, and yet uh, it's completely comprehensible. It is not infinity. It's an, a very specific quantifiable number. And so, yeah, it's possible within it to sort of get this sort of playful, nerdy humour because it's a maths joke, but it's also a kind of totalizing abstraction, a number that's bigger than the universe. So taken together, it can... Uh, give an insight into how Google saw itself as launching an absolutely world-conquering ambition. Tell me about the audience as commodity theory and how this applies to the way that Google works. Because we get the sense that Google services are offered to us apparently free at no cost. Yes, Google often uses that logic to justify itself. You can see it at play at the moment in the debacle about the Um, using news media content from Australia. It's using this exact same myth. But the audience commodity theory essentially states that uh, under capitalism, if you're getting something for free, you're not the product. You're not the the customer, sorry. You're the product. You are what's being sold. In Google's case, it's the data that ordinary people such as ourselves use when we interact with the internet 
either through active searches or through any of the other parts of our life that have been colonized by smart devices, we produce a tremendous amount of data. That data is accumulated through surveillance technologies by Google and sold to the advertisers who are the true customers of Google because they're the ones that pay money for access to our data in order to sell more products. And so while it appears to be free, we are actually um, just part of the production process that have this data extracted from us, refined, sold to advertisers, uh, which then allows Google to uh, more successfully manipulate our practices uh, to make us more consumeristic and more likely to click on sponsored links and engage with the world consumeristically, hence making more profit for Google. And the, the controversy that you just mentioned about news being available on Google, there's, there's quite a lot of discussion about this at the moment. Just very, very briefly drill into that. Um, yes, there is a lot of discussion at the moment. It's a controversy that's popped up in Australia, in Spain, and a number of other countries around the world who are looking at ways to try to regulate big tech, uh, which of course big tech is incredibly resistant to. In an Australian context, it often it comes down to a kind of a factional war between different arms of monopoly capitalism with the sort of Murdoch empire on one side and the Google Facebook on the other. And each of them are arguing uh, a point of trying to get uh, more power and profit within the process. The actual uh, democratic spreading of good news is unfortunately not an incredible, uh, not at the top of the pile of considerations, you could put it that way. But um, in this instance, Australia is putting forward a code of conduct which would require um, big tech companies like Google and Facebook, primarily those two, to pay uh, some money to the big news companies, mostly the Murdoch press, in order to use its stories. Google have lashed out at it repeatedly, claiming uh, this sort of pseudo little guy status of, oh no, we're going, we're the, the victims here. Um, this service will, uh, this legislation will dramatically reduce our ability to give good search results. It will reduce people's customer experience. It's going to be terrible. Uh, they even put an alert, I think it was just yesterday or the day before, up on their homepage. So anyone who went to google.com, which is the most visited website in Australia, they would have seen a little alert saying, the government is trying to make this website worse for you. Your Google searches will be impacted. Um, surveillance data will be opened up to others, not us. This is terrible. Um, but it's really uh, a bit false and fraudulent of them um, mm. when you get into the, the stickiness of the argument. Now, can you talk about the way that Google search engine works, the AdWords program and the automated global auction, which I didn't actually know anything about until I read your pieces. But what happens, for example, when you type a word or a phrase into Google, Google search box? And how does this connect to Google's surveillance capacity? When you type a word into Google, the word is sent letter by letter to Google's uh, data centers on the other side of the planet. Most of them are in the US. And in those data centers, which are absolutely enormous complexes of computers, they are analyzed by about 700 different algorithms, which change on basically a daily basis. Uh, those algorithms pull apart the word and make different associations with it that are trying to focus it in towards you uh, and what you want and your personal interests. So the more surveillance data they have about you, the better as in more uh, locally relevant is their terminology, the result can be. 
then if that word has a um, has a uh, it can go into their their auctions, which means that that word can be sold to advertisers who want to be associated with that word. Um, they do that through an automated auction process. So any advertiser can make a bid on a word if they want to uh, appear high on the pile. For example, if you wanted to um, have an auction for the word fast car, not a very specific one, uh, but if you type, do a search for fast car, um, Oh, that's a terrible example. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good example. Well, I, I can give you no. an example. I can give you an example. I was looking for a, a very obscure uh, film the other night. No, and I, I typed the title of the film into Google, so they would be able to use that that the words that I typed, uh, and they would be able to sell those words essentially to advertising. That's right. Um, all of any word that you put into Google's surveillance engine, which is they call it the search engine, it does both really, uh, becomes available for sale by auction to advertisers. If you were to search for truck insurance, for example, uh, that's a specific kind of search, and you're usually only going to do that if you're looking to buy something. A single click on a truck insurance uh, ad word could give could see about three hundred dollars transferred from a truck insurance company to Google. So there's big money and high stakes in some of uh, the most contested AdWords, which are mostly around uh, in finance and financial services. So if you're a truck insurance company, you want uh, your ad to appear right at the top of the search pile. So to do that, you're going to pay more in an auction and whoever pays the, the highest, their ad goes to the top, therefore it will get the most clicks. And mm. the more surveillance that they can pull in about people, the higher the costs can be. If you're walking down, say, Ligon Street at 7 p.m. on a Friday, assuming that we're allowed to do that and aren't in lockdown, uh, then, and you search for a restaurant, that's uh, a very specific place. Uh, and there's going to be uh, whoever, whichever of the restaurants, if they are customers of Google, they will bid and whoever pays the most money will end up at the top. And therefore, the one that you will most likely see on your um, on your smartphone, and then you'll most likely go to that restaurant. And so there are various ways like that where advertisers can pay more money to try to manipulate people um, to go to whatever product that they're selling is. And it does mm -hmm. that through surveillance and a incredibly complicated global um, infrastructure of computing machines. As you, you're pointing out, the capacity for Google's surveillance seems I would use the word boundless, and I say this in a, in a kind of literal sense, and certain organizations, including intelligence agencies and the military, appear to be using, utilizing this capacity. Tell us about some of the things you found out here. Uh, absolutely boundless is the right word to look at it. And I guess you can see that in the, the nerdy humor around the name Google and its absolute vastness of it. It has this... Uh, totalizing nature to it right at the beginning and yes as Google was launched and um, uh, accelerated it did so with some of the the co-founders under direct supervision of people who are known CIA assets and they took money early on from a number of venture capitalists who had deep links to other parts of the military industrial complex um, this is not it's that special 
in the world of Silicon Valley, actually. The whole thing has grown up in this bizarre relationship with the military industrial complex as a whole. Uh, most of the big companies have a lot of crossovers with it. Google's is no exception. Uh, Google, in a lot of ways, benefited from the failed US plan of um, total information awareness under the first Bush regime, which started as an incredibly ambitious government surveillance pro project. And ultimately, it fell apart um, in the early part of the world on terror. But it didn't need to go through in its original design format because it turned out that Google could do a lot of what that project intended to do in the private sector. And then that, that could be um, used as a way for government uh, nefarious government agencies such as the, the big five in the US or the 17 government agencies that uh, work in the intelligence sphere. And all of them uh, in various ways have uh, used big tech companies like Google and others uh, to try to get at data of people in the US and around the world as part of their own proje uh, process, projects of national security and whatever that euphemism is used for in practice. Is Google now, are they connected with the military or uh, intelligence agencies now as well? Are, are they working for them? Uh, they certainly are in a number of ways, although this is in the last couple of years come into a bit of contestation for the first time with some of their employees. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a project that they embarked on called Project Malvin, which saw Google doing outsourcing work for different parts of the US uh, military complex, uh, where they would include doing image recognition work on uh, drones and drone warfare and being part of that. And as I said, this is not uncommon for Silicon Valley. It's basically the norm. Although what was different in this case was a number of employees within Google uh, took an ethical stand against that action. And Google ended up dropping that contract, even though it was very big and uh, lucrative. Uh, which is kind of an interesting development because previously there was little or no resistance towards um, from internal Google employees to, to their employer uh, working with some pretty nefarious projects. But no, they absolutely continue. Uh, but also a big part of it is simply not known outside of the corporation because they are notoriously secretive, as are, of course, the big surveillance um, and intelligence agencies. And uh, we know that from say the Snowden leaks and others like that, that there are a number of backdoors built in and uh, underground sort of uh, unknown outside of those big agencies because they're very untransparent. And, and so there's a lot of it that's unknown as well, but from what is known and is on the public record in one way or another, it's fair to say that they have deep and ongoing ties. You're listening to Timothy Eric Strom discussing the global empire that's been built up by the tech company Google. And this is Communication Mixdown. Hi there, 3CR listeners. This is Shane Howard, the Gowana fella. These are strange and tough times, and a lot of people are doing it really hard. But they will pass. Be kind to yourself and others. Buy local, and like 3CR, support local businesses and local artists. Don't be afraid to reach out for help if you need it, and don't hold back giving it if you can. Thanks to 3CR for being their collective voice. Now, Google's boundlessness, if I can use that term, a rather awkward term, their boundlessness doesn't just exist in the virtual world. 
but it seems to operate in the real world of corporate capital and political decision-making. Talk us through some of the ways that Google's been known to lobby and influence governments. Yeah, Google, uh, a infamously big lobbyer. They're up there with Lockheed Martin and some of the you know, biggest corporations in the world for just pouring huge amounts of, of their wealth into uh, buying politicians, basically, the um, organised corruption, organised and legalised corruption that pervades uh, big countries, particularly the US, but not, not only there. Um, they, not only do they do the old-fashioned lobbying uh, to the tune of millions of dollars per year, uh, often they're the, they've been in the top 10 companies uh, by lobbying, I think, for about the last decade, sometimes taking the number one position. Uh, but they also have a whole string of other things. They uh, fund hundreds of think tanks uh, across a small range of the political spectrum, basically from a very neoliberal to a very neoconservative band. They pour money into those think tanks, which then um, produce papers and work with governments and whatnot to try to uh, influence politics more in that way. They um, have you know, set up a number of different as arms of Google, like they have their global development arm, google.org, which is different from other kinds of development projects in that it actively puts money into profit-seeking corporations to try to influence the world. And they have a geopolitical arm named Jigsaw, which works closely with the US State Department. Uh, they also have a number of Cambridge Analytica-like abilities. Uh, there was a number of controversies around this that came out of the 2016 US presidential election. Uh, of course, most of the attention was on Cambridge Analytica, but actually there was a number of Google-affiliated ones that were trying to get Hillary Clinton in unsuccessfully, ultimately. But um, it's likely that we'll see a lot more of that in the coming months with the, in the lead-up to the current US election. Uh, in short, the billionaires uh, at the top of Google and their structure as a whole, like a lot of the other big tech companies, has incredibly disproportionate powers uh, over the democratic process. And you know, this is uh, such a such a hot to topic. Uh, I'm pleased to say, over the last couple of years, for the first time, it's coming into a bit of focus. There have been like major contenders running on breakup big tech logics, and while that has its flaws, it's great to see it actually being contested after a good 20-something years of just being assumed that it was a good thing and that we were going in a good way. It's good to have some contestation and some uh, problematization of these vast tyrannies that have been constructed. Google makes a very big claims about how they're essentially a torchbearer for global democratization. You're very, very dubious about these claims. I'd like to find out why you think that. Well, it all depends on what democratization means. I understand it as ordinary people having power to make collective decisions in ways that are basically egalitarian and fair. And understood in that light, Google basically run in the complete opposite direction. They understand democratization to essentially mean marketization and making the world more amenable for consumers to buy and sell goods and for capital to accumulate. That is how they understand the term. And in that sense, they've done a very good job. In the former sense of democracy, in a more social justice-oriented way, they run completely against the grain of it. You can look at their internal 
decision-making structure to get an insight into how this is so perverted from the very beginning. Uh, Google, when they had their initial public offering back in 2004, I believe it was, they set themselves up with a dual stock structure, which allowed the key executives at the top to have stocks where one stock would give them 10 votes, whereas all other stocks would only have one vote. And then later they also introduced a zero vote stock. This has enabled over the years for an incredible concentration of the decision-making power within Google or Alphabet as they reconstituted themselves into to go to very, very few people. Essentially the co-founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin control over 50% of the votes, uh, which means that they, those two people essentially make all of the big decisions about how Google and their vast global empire functions. It's very similar to um, say what Facebook has done under Mark Zuckerberg. He personally has the majority control of that corporation. And it's, this, this is tyrannous. Um, we're talking about one or two people having control over a, a incredibly well-resourced global institution that has a, just a prolifera of political and economic and social and ecological impacts around the world. And that's not to put this um, on a pedestal compared to the traditional corporate model, which basically puts the biggest shareholders in charge of the board. That's a different kind of uh, anti-democratic domination, basically. Uh, each of those models uh, goes completely against the grain of trying to uh, have people collectively organise in ways that are basically fair and egalitarian towards having more social just ends, which if that's what democracy means, both of those models of either the founder-controlled model or the shareholder-controlled model of how these big tech companies work is antithetical to democracy as it's understood in a more social sense. Mm. And from that internal decision-making process, it's just fanned out into basically all aspects of what they do. Now, I want to end with what I think is one of the most intriguing parts of your writing on the Google empire, if I can call it that, the connection you make between Google and Mary Shelley's famous novel, Frankenstein, which was published in the early years of the 19th century. Why did you make this connection? Uh, initially, I made the connection because um, the series of articles that you're referring to that I wrote was published in 2018, which was the 20th year anniversary of Google, and it just so happened to be the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein. So initially, it was a coincidence of those two coming together. But Frankenstein uh, is a fantastic story. Uh, Mary Shelley was really on the pulse of the, uh, in the early 18th, sorry, early 19th century. She was really on the pulse of the emerging uh, power that sciences were having uh, over the world, which is just accelerated massively, particularly after the Second World War and the rise of computing machines and atomic weapons and whatnot. And in it, uh, it can be read as a story of great hubris where uh, Dr. Frankenstein, he tried to become a god, basically. He tried to breathe life into dead matter to uh, yeah, become a god by animating something. And Google actually have... Uh, participating in this deeply hubric uh, way of being. Like if you look at a lot of their plans, because uh, they're such a sprawling corporation, they have uh, plans to engineer away death. They have their own biotech company that is specifically aimed at pro prolonging human life and engineer away death. They um, fund a lot of uh, AI 
companies and um, the Singularity University, which is a whole monster in and of itself, but they're tr through trying to make uh, billionaires immortal, basically, and to try to create uh, thinking machines that actually have their own life. They're trying to emulate God in some way. And that was what uh, Frankenstein uh, tried, did successfully in the story. But then, of course, he ended up haunted by his creature, by his monster, which he refused to treat properly. And it, it can be read as a, a warning against uh, hubris and of trying to play God and of being having the incredible arrogance that a company like Google or the other big tech companies all, all show. Uh, really, you know, we need to uh, try to you know, rethink, rethink it. And I think, yeah, uh, Frankenstein was an insight, gave a good insight into that because it was written right at, the, uh, at a key point at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And a lot of its insights can apply to our current moment in ways that would really give us pause to rethink the role of the techno-sciences and the huge capitalist corporations that control them. And in the interest of what? Like, who's really at stake here and if we draw in the Frankenstein myth uh, which is a fantastic modern myth as well as uh, notions of democratization in like the more meaningful sense of it we can you know, begin to imagine some different ways that the world could be organized. That was Timothy Eric Strom. His book is Globalization and Surveillance. It's published by Roman and Littlefield. His articles on Google can be found in the Arena magazine, where he's also the online editor. All the relevant links will be available, along with a podcast of the show, on the Communication Mixdown website. That's the program for this week. Back again next Monday at 6 p.m. Let's go out with a song about an altogether different kind of Google. And I have to say, I couldn't resist playing this. Again, you're wrong, and to the throng I'm going to introduce that Barney Google with a goo-goo-googly eye. Barney Google had a wife three times his size. She sued Barney for divorce. Now he's living with his horse. Barney Google with a goo-goo-googly eye. Barney Google with a goo-goo-googly eye. Barney Google said his horse would win the prize. When the horses ran that day, Mark ran the other way. Barney Google with a goo-goo-googly eye. Greatest lover that this country ever knew. Who's the man that Valentino takes his hat off to? No, it isn't Douglas Fairbanks that the ladies rave about. When he arrives, who makes the wife chase all their husbands out? Why, it's their Barney Google with a goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-goo-go
is the luckiest of guys. If he fell into the mud, he'd come up with a diamond stud. Barney Google with a new googly eye. Google it. 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 Google it.